Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Hi, everybody. Welcome uh, to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series. My name is Carrie Conley, and I'm the Assistant Director for Communications at the Center. The Women in Public Policy Program closes gender gaps in economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. And today we have a very special presenter, our own Hannah Riley Bowles, who you've probably seen sitting up here before, adding the insightful comments at the end, connecting different disciplines together with whatever speaker we have. But today we actually get to hear her research. So for those of you who do not know Hannah, she is, let me just get my little cheat sheet here. She's a senior lecturer in public policy at the Kennedy School and also the research director of the Women in Public Policy program. Her research focuses on gender and negotiation as well as women in leadership and how women advance in leadership positions. Uh, she has been published in many academic journals including the Academy of Management Journal, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, Organizational Behavior and Human Decision Processes, Psychological Science, and the Journal of Behavioral Decision Making. Her research has been also covered in popular news. You might have seen her in the New York Times or the Boston Globe or the Wall Street Journal or Time. Or if you were particularly lucky, you may have caught her on TV as she was on The Katie Show uh, when they did a whole episode on negotiation and women in negotiation. When was that, last spring or two springs ago? We're actually going to see a clip today, so you get a little bit of a taste of that. Some Kennedy School students. Uh, at the school here, she teaches leadership and negotiation. She is the uh, faculty chair of the Women in Power Executive Program, which trains women executives and leaders how to excel in their careers. She has her, uh, oh, she also received the Kennedy School's Manuel Carbello Award for Excellence in Teaching. She has her doctorate from the Business School her master's from the Kennedy School, and her bachelor's from Smith College. So I'm very pleased to welcome Hannah. Thank you. So I'm going to do something slight. This will be a little bit different than the typical um, talk. I'm going to I'm going to walk through. I am going to talk about research, but I but I have these these workbooks. Um, I'm calling it an individual challenge workbook. I also have a, a kind of organizational challenge version of this. And when I would do this talk um, with executives, I would um, usually have some time for buzzing and, and actually time to work through this. And I think what, I, what I'm going to do, though, because we're short on time today, is I'm going to walk through the research, but then, but I'll pause at certain points and direct you to questions within the workbook that are related to the research. So you can at least think and maybe jot down notes about um, the extent to which, but also just think about how you might, when you're when you're anticipating a job negotiation, use the use the workbook. This is, uh, by the way, a work in progress, and I welcome any thoughts. Um, I'm, I'd like to kind of turn this into some, maybe put it through the case program or something like that soon. I've been using it in different programs and improving it, and so if anybody has um, feedback on it, I would love to love to hear it or, or how it might be most useful. So let me get started. I'm going to talk about uh, so there's three different parts of things I'm going to talk about. One is just in general about career negotiations. Second, I'm going to talk about ambiguity. Why is ambiguity um, not your friend in a career negotiation, particularly a compensation negotiation? 
And then thirdly, talking about creating opportunities. You know, what are the barriers that are, that are out there and then how do we overcome them and create uh, strategies for overcoming them to create opportunities. So career negotiations, why are career negotiations important? Career negotiation is an essential process for gaining resources and opportunities for career advancement. And I'm going to talk more broadly about what I mean, what I have in mind by career negotiations. But I, I don't, I want, I'm going to start now by telling you all not to just think about, um, you know, the moment when you have your offer and you're trying to negotiate a particular package with uh, a potential employer or particular moments where you're in a review or something. I'm thinking about negotiation much more broadly about, you know, kind of how you work out, um, you know, in collaboration and sometimes in conflict with others, you know, what your path is going to be, what role it is that you're going to play, you're going to play um, in mutually beneficial ways. <coughs> so th through negotiation, you can think about enhancing um, your recognition or rewards, right? So rewards, you can think of compensation, re recognition, you can think about you know, your name on, what, what, you know, your, whether your name is on something, whether people are clear about the contributions you've made, whether, what, whether your title reflects uh, the, the role that you play within the organization. Um, seizing opportunities to expand your authority, I'll talk more about this, but a lot of, I've been doing a lot of interviews with executives in recent years, um, and you know, a lot of what they talk about negotiating is just figuring out like what is exactly the role that they're going to play. So everything from, you know, what is their budget? Who reports to them? To whom do they report? You know, more broadly, what is their, their scope of work? Um, you can also think about negotiation um, as a, a strategy, a tool for or a process for overcoming barriers and challenges. So there's some very interesting research showing that when we feel more powerful, we're more prone to action. And one of the ways in which we're more prone to action when we're feeling powerful is we're more prone to negotiate, right? So we might not think about our opportunities to negotiate in those moments when we feel, frankly, disempowered, when we feel like something is in our way or we're being overlooked. But again, in the, in the interviews with the executive, there are a lot of examples of how people negotiated to overcome what they felt like were things that were standing in the way of getting to where they wanted to get. I think there are a few seats open if you have no hesitation to come down. And then finally, I think this is an important one, is you can negotiate to make your work more personally meaningful. Um, and I think that, um, you know, this is, uh, I think this is particularly important, I think this is important for everyone to the extent to which women take, tend to take on more, uh, uh, more household and caregiving responsibilities, and particularly caregiving responsibilities at certain times. And that creates anybody who's taking on, and it, and it, uh, it still is, tends to be women more than men, but anybody who's in a primary caregiving role, be it with parents or siblings or children, can find it really hard during certain periods of time to be excellent at all things. You know, excellent in the workplace and excellent in your caregiving roles. And to the extent to which your work can give you resilience, it can, when you go to work, it makes you feel um, more positive, it gives you a boost. You know, I think that can help you kind of stay stay in your career and keep going. You know, I think a lot of one of one of the things that unfortunately we are struggling with in our aspirations to get more women into senior positions is this um, situation that, that women often and men also, but women uh, often and we're going to talk. I'm going to focus a little bit more on women, but I but I welcome people kind of. I, I don't want to pretend this is all just about women. Um, that. You know, you get to these um, pinch points in life and people just decide, well, I have to stop. You know, I just can't manage it all. 
And so you have to think about, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you negotiate your work to overcome barriers, but then also get yourself working on stuff that gives you that energy to push through difficult periods. Okay, so this is um, some data, again, kind of broadening our conception of negotiation. Um, this is some data that we, from a survey that we did of 364 female executives at a women's leadership conference. And um, what you'll see is that we, we asked them, not in this order, but we listed, uh, I think it's this 20 um, some odd uh, potential opportunities or problems that they might negotiate. So they were in random order. They weren't like this, but this is what they are sorted, opportunities and problems. And so their opportunities are things like, if you guys can read it, seeking a new position or leadership opportunity, um, changing work, advancing your career by changing work, enhancing your potential for promotion, seeking a raise, broader authority, etc. Um, problems would be things like not being given recognition, bad politics, being overlooked for a promotion or blocked from advancing, feeling undervalued or not rewarded, work family types of things. And we asked them, you know, recall a recent career negotiation. So some situations where you, you had to work out something, it's not just a perfunctory request, but there's something that you had to work out with colleagues about something related to your career. Um, and if you can think of one, please kind of code it along these things. To what extent were these things there? Now, this is the counts. The counts are going to exceed the total number of respondents because a lot of people checked off more than one thing, right? Um, uh, but if you see, this is ranked in order of frequency. So seeking a raise, which is what we talk about all the time, that's pretty high up here among kind of opportunities. But it's not, the it's not the most common thing. I mean, the most common thing that these women describe negotiating are things like seeking a new position or a leadership opportunity or some sort of change in their career. You know, it's not just about money. I think we overemphasize that, and I'm, I'm guilty of this. I'm part of this problem in the press that a lot of the re research, because we do it in the lab or through archival data, is on salary, and it's a little bit of the academic searching underneath the lamppost. You know, we like studying compensation because there are numbers and we can replicate these things in the lab. People recognize it, but we need to think more broadly. A lot of my research now is I'm trying to get us to think more broadly. But here's an example of one, you know, I started a negotiation with my current supervisor to create a new position that I felt would be perfect for our company. So I'm going to talk about this. We only, about, about, I'm going to elaborate on this example more in a moment. But I also want you to think not just about negotiating for things that are kind of like standard elements of a package but also negotiating to influence the strategic direction of the organization that you're joining, right? And the roles that you could potentially play within that organization. On the problem side, um, not giving recognition was a top example, and here's one, um, which is something you hear about. You know, I've been acting in a team lead capacity for at least two years, but not formally identified as the lead, right? I'm doing all the work, but I'm not recognized for my leadership. I'm also, I'm the senior most member of the team, the team trainer, you know, working on special assignments, and this, and what she, what this woman describes she's doing is trying to get a change in her title and commence her compensation. So she wants the recognition and rewards to catch up with the role that she's playing in the organization. Okay. So, as we think about this, I want you to think more broadly again about career negotiations in terms of opportunities and in terms of potential problems that you might resolve, right? And you can think about these, within each of these categories, you can think about what we call institutional things or typical or standard things that you'd negotiate, right? So salary. So actually the numbers on the, on the percentages of people that negotiate salary are actually not that high. I mean, even a lot of these studies. So there's all this data, oh, men do this more than women, but 
in a lot of these studies, it's like 15% of the men did it and, you know, 3 or 5% of the women. So it's a lot more men than women. But frankly, this is not something that everybody negotiates all the time. So I think we have to be kind of uh, careful about that. And then also, particularly in the public sector, I think we have to be, you know, there's, there's you know, there's their government, there, there's sort of... My understanding is that there is negotiability within your band. You may be assigned to a band within the government, but there's some negotiation ability. But even particularly in the nonprofit sector, or something that people sometimes they just don't have budgets, frankly, to negotiate on that. But then that's an opportunity to negotiate for other things. Uh, a classic, uh, oh yeah. So I was saying a lot of the emphasis is here. It's a classic sort of example of a typical thing that you might negotiate to overcome a problem is training or experience, right? So, um, you know, let's say you don't have to, you want more leadership training, or you want financial training, or you want a coach, or something like that. There are a lot of ways in which people can um, negotiate for support to overcome what people might argue are, you know, experience deficits or something. Now, then, you know, sort of above these institutional things are what we might call institution bending. So sometimes you're, you're negotiating and ask for something that's sort of beyond what's standard. So, um, a lot of the a number of we interviewed a number of executives uh, here who went did executive education at the Kennedy School, and a lot of them use this as an example coming to Harvard to do training, <laughs> and how Harvard's program was more expensive than the programs that other people wanted to send them to. So they were they needed to negotiate for a larger training budget, and they had to kind of make the argument for how they were going to do that, why why it was going to be beneficial to the organization, not just to them, if they could get this greater budget for training. Um, Another example around the problems is people um, negotiating for reassignments when they're experiencing an, an obstructed career path. You may, people aren't looking at you as high potential in the job that you're in, or you're just in a space where you don't feel like you can go upward and you need to negotiate to get yourself on a different path. Then, going back to this example of this woman who proposes, I think this is, there's a new position you should create within the organization. Not I want a promotion, but we need to go in a new strategic direction. What we hear from a lot of executives, um, men and women, is you know negotiating to play a novel strategic role. That you're not just negotiating about what you want, you're actually negotiating to argue that the organization should head in a particular direction. Um, so here's an example of somebody says, the reason why I want to be a better manager is to improve things, to be more effective in improving things in the organization that need to be improved. If the organization is succeed and I'm to succeed as a change agent, um, or whatever you want to call it, there are changes that I need to make. You know, this is somebody, I, I need to do, things around here need, if, if I'm going to make a difference around here, you know, things are going to change, and I have a vision for how to do that, and let me, let me help you see that. So I want you to think, you know, broadly about that. Um, another example is um, you know creating new roles around work family. We've, there's a number of interviews we've gotten where people have just negotiated to persuade folks that, you know, I know the person who's had this job has always lived in Cincinnati, but this isn't a job that actually has to be done by a person who lives in Cincinnati or something. You know what I mean? Like, I can relocate and I can still do this job, or this is a job that can be done as a job share or something like that. I mean, coming up with creative solutions where you're kind of changing organizational practices to come up with solutions that work for yourself, but also have um, you know constructive precedence for the organizations. Frankly, sometimes with women, I think a lot of times it's uh, accumulated negotiations like this. Like, how do you get maternity policies? You know, and an academic institution. It was a it was a number of women who there was no policy, right? Who had to negotiate kind of individual deals, and incrementally over time, we learn from those individual negotiations. We learn from these kind of ideals or individualized deals. And then those negotiations become the ones that shape the organizations, right? I'll emphasize at the end, you've got to remember you're not negotiating for yourself alone. 
talk about self-advocacy is hard for women, but you have to really think about, you know, when you're in there, this is not just about you. You know, there's um, uh, women succeeding is good uh, for all women. So the other thing to think about in these negotiations is that, is that I'm largely talking here just so far only about negotiations between an employee and employer, right? But if you really want to understand the function of negotiation in things like the gender wage gap or the gap, the gender gap in authority, um, you really have to understand that job negotiations are a two-level game, right? So how many of you are familiar with Putnam's two-level game? There's probably a lot of folks around here. So um, Kathy McGinn and I wrote a paper saying, listen, you've got to look at job negotiations that way. So Putnam's idea was that basically when two states negotiate something like a trade agreement, it's not just two monolithic states doing that. At least in a democracy, you've got an executive branch negotiating agreement that has to be then ratified by Congress. <coughs> and for, you know, at certain stage of life, we're relatively autonomous and we can go around and making whatever deals that we want. But, um, uh, but even, um, but we quickly in our adulthood and through, the, through, the, through your career, you're likely to be in, you know, meaningful partnerships and family relationships where you're figuring out what you want to do in collaboration and concert with others, right? And how you work out those arrangements around caregiving or household responsibilities, all these other types of things, do have bearing on uh, your own, um, you know, your workforce commitment, the types of jobs you take, the places where you want to um, work, and stuff like that. So, what I want to I want to talk for a moment about Lily Ledbetter's story and the wage gap to kind of separate these two things. So, um, Lily Ledbetter, people who a lot of people in this room will know Lily Ledbetter, right? So, very kind of famous. Uh, Obama's first legislation, maybe as a concession to Hillary, first legislation he signs into office, you know, the Lilly Letter, Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. It's actually very narrow. It's really a pretty narrow legislation. It's just about how much time can pass before you can bring a suit. But it's symbolically, um, she's, a, she's an important figure. So her story is that in 1996, she receives the top performance award from her company, which I think was Goodyear Tire. And then in 1997, she's earning about $45,000, okay? Now, years later, she's, she finds out that the lowest paid man doing the same work is order, or, or, uh, making over $51,000. So she's, she's making, even though she's got the top performance award, right, she's making 87 cents on the dollar. And a lot of people compare this problem to, and I'm describing the year, I'm grabbing 1996 for comparison, to this 77 cents on the dollar problem that we have comparing men and women's full-time wages, right? But but that's misleading, right? The majority of this gap is really got to do with the gender division of household labor. I mean, it, it's got to do with, it's in part, there, there's definitely components of the gender segregation of labor and the, the, sig the signals that people get at certain stages of life about what their careers should be in gendered ways. Um, but a lot of this is, 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 is really about, you know, the the number of hours per week you work, the number of years that you're in the workforce, and then whether and, you know the types of occupations that you take and in the, in the, in the sort of career-specific investment that that requires. The, the latest research on the gender wage gap by Claudia Golden is really fascinating. What she finds is that most of the gender wage gap for full-plate employees is really, really comes from those spaces where extreme work, you know, like lots of travel and very high hours, are highly valued. So she uses the example, she says, like, you know, the 20-hour-a-week pharmacist is paid about half what the 40-hour-a-week pharmacist is paid. Um, but the 40-hour-a-week lawyer 
is not paid half of what the 80-hour-a-week lawyer is paid, right? I mean, there's just, there are certain professions that really reward extreme commitment, and it's really, that is the space in which we're finding the most, the largest gender gaps, right? So I just encourage you to think not only really broadly about, you know, getting beyond compensation to thinking more broadly about career, I really like you to think holistically about this. Now, <coughs> even if you are at an unencumbered, relatively unencumbered stage of life, <laughs> um, for women in particular, I, what, what the research shows is that um, that the the gender division of household labor just, doesn't just constrain women's workforce participation at the moment when they feel the pinch. Um, that it's actually the anticipation of the pinch. It is the anticipation of the conflict that ends up affecting women's choices. And I will tell a story about this at my own expense. So I was a, an MPP student. And you have those embarrassing moments from youth that you remember. Um, and I was at like some sort of recruitment thing with the State Department, uh, or it was a recruitment thing in Washington, and there was a State Department person there. And I remember saying, and I actually, I was somebody, I was talking to the State Department person. I, would, I spoke multiple languages. I had international work experience in multiple countries. I had relevant, you know, internationally relevant coursework at the Kennedy School. And I told this guy, what man is going to follow me around the globe while I pursue my diplomatic career? Like, this sounds great, but honestly, I'm just not going to go for this. I admit, I said this. Now, my husband, my husband, my love of my life, was seven years out, and I met him doing international work. So actually, had I started circling the globe a little bit faster, I might even actually have found him sooner. But I had decided that this wasn't going to work, you know, because I had this vision of what this is supposed to look like. And, and frankly, also, in the, that was like 1994, I made that comment. It's 1994, and we're in 2000 you know, 14, 15 now. Also, the um, men's and females' relationships have also changed. And, with the, you know, we've had the, you know, the man session and all this. I mean, there's just a lot of women who are playing, and it will be increasingly the case for your generation that they, they're working out, and I now live in one, working out mutually beneficial, like really happy, mutually beneficial dual career relationships. So we, we just have to really make sure that we don't, aren't also deciding that we've lost this negotiation before we've even met our counterpart, right? Okay, so let me keep going on this. All right, so this is this moment where I'll get you to, just so you can look in your workbook. So the workbook asks you to identify a current, anticipated, or desired career-related negotiation. And it's okay if it's just desired or anticipated. I mean, this can be pretty far out there. When I talk to executives about their negotiations, they're not 20 minutes, not like those 20-minute negotiation exercises you do with Mandel. I mean, these are things that where, these are conversations that went on, with, went on with multiple people over the course of weeks, if not months, or even years, right? So you're thinking about, you know, whether it's overcoming barriers or seizing opportunity. What do you want to do? What do you want? And why? What are your, like, underlying motivations? What are your interests? What's motivating you? And then what do you see? How many people have had some negotiation training in here, have done some of the... So fair enough. So what do you want to see is you want to look at your what we, what we call a negotiation of your no agreement alternative, right? You want to think about what is it you want, and then realistically, kind of what is the best alternative, right? And think about you know how these things you know how these meet your interests. Um, and then I'd like you to think about with whom do you anticipate negotiating, um, and not just think narrowly about one person at one point when they're hiring you or something, but more broadly, like. What is the sort of larger coalition that you would need to build to, to achieve what you want to achieve and be that household partners, 
as well as work partners to do what you want to do, you know? And we have to remember also the, the whole work family thing gets very pre gets presented a lot of times as this like conflict, you know, that it's, you know, you're either one, you know, that one, you're being in one takes away from the other. And I, and I have to tell you, that's just, I, I, I don't think for a lot of, there are pinch points, but for a lot of people, going back to the resilience point, they, they also, there's mutual gains. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of win-wins in there. There are a lot of win-wins that can be achieved um, uh, in terms of the uh, creative managing of time, in terms of partnership gains. I mean, my husband gains from his, his I, I think he gains from his relationship with our children, you know, where it could have been very different if we just, you know, if I just said, no, you go extreme and I'm, I'm going to black out or something. <laughs> I mean, like, you, there are, I think there's, there, there's a lot to be gained from the, the mutual gains, you know, kind of working things out. I won't go on and on about that. I could. <laughs> All right, so ambiguity. Why do I care about ambiguity? So you're, you're, you're thinking about what you want to do, and um, you've got this in mind. You're imagining who you want to negotiate with, right? So why, why do I want you to start thinking about points of ambiguity? Because I'm imagining you're seeing some, because you're not exactly sure. Maybe I'm not totally clear on what I want. Not sure clear what I could ask for. Not exactly sure who I negotiate with or how I would pull this off. Um, and this is important. So there's a because negotiate. Excuse me, ambiguity um, heightens the potential for gender to influence the negotiation and and for and in potentially disadvantageous ways. So one source of ambiguity relates to negotiating counterparts. So ambiguity heightens the potential for gender stereotypic attributions, right? So if you're at the negotiating table and I don't really know you that well, I, I'm likely to use information about your gender or other identity, in, in, in other identity markers, right? To, to try to discern what type of a person you're gonna be, right? So there's a classic thing um, that they talk about in organizations, there's sort of pr presumption, you know, women don't wanna travel or the women don't want the overseas work. She's not going to want this, you know, or, you know, she's not expecting a certain level of salary or, she, you know, I mean, what are, what are, or you might be also, you know, we could be expecting, because we hear all this stuff about women being taken advantage of, we could be thinking, you know, I'm going to be super tough with this person because they think <coughs> I'm going to be soft, you know, this is just a guy who's going to give me a hard time. We have to think, the more ambiguity there is, the more likely we're going to make stereotypic assumptions kind of going both ways. People are toward us, and then we are also toward others. And we have to be kind of aware of this dynamic. Now, also, ambiguity um, about how and what to negotiate leads to differential outcomes in negotiation, job-related negotiation. So I'm going to talk about that. The how is a kind of norm ambiguity, and the what is what we call structural ambiguity. So um, let me explain the, I'll go back here and explain the how first. So uh, I'm sure a number of you have heard this women don't ask thing, you know what I mean? Women don't negotiate, they're, they're nervous or whatever. Um, there's even been proposed legislation before Congress to train women in negotiation to close the gender wage gap, you know, because we could just fix them. If we could just get them to ask, you know, that would solve this. <laughs> and, um, uh, but what it, what's very interesting is that where this, what the research suggests is that when you're, that, um, that you're more likely to get this reticence on women's part to negotiate or this like desire to just take that first offer and stop there when it's unclear what the norms are about how to negotiate. Um, when it's unclear because, and there's a lot of, there's good reason, I'm gonna get to this in a moment, there's good reason for women to feel more nervous about negotiating than men because it's more socially risky. But it's really, it's, we're more likely when we're not really sure how we go about this um, for, for men to be, 
for women to be more reticent than men, right? If you understand what the norms are, the, uh, I'll get into this more too, but if you, you don't even know who to negotiate, you know, you have to think about who you're going to go, the, the, your, I'm like jumping, okay, I'm jumping ahead. I'm going to pause here, but just keep this in mind. Keep it in the back of your mind. I'm going to fill, I'm going to fill in with more data in a moment. But, but keep it in the back of your mind that there, that this is, this is more likely to occur, actually two, two circumstances, mostly likely to occur if you're not really sure whether you should be negotiating or how to negotiate. Women are more reticent than men. If the situation is very clearly stereotypically masculine, that's another thing that the women will avoid. But the ambiguity, more typical is the case that it's really not clear how you should go about this, and that's what gives women the heebie-jeebies. Um, what to negotiate is another thing, right? So what should I ask for? You know, I mean, what's even what's what's negotiable? And then if I even I know kind of what's negotiable, what's what's a what's an appropriate standard, right? Like what salary level should I be asking for? You know, in the academic field, how much summer support or you know, call it vacation time, or how many staff could I be asking for? Or could I be, could I ask when I get put in this new leadership role for a coach? You know, do I even know that I could ask for a coach? Um, I did this program a few years ago with the, like, at the astronomy department with these, like, you know, planet scientists or whatever. <laughs> um, this one woman described how she was negotiating a postdoc, and then she happened to get a flyer indicating that postdocs can get summer support. And so she called up and said, oh yeah, and could I get summer support? And which is, which is, which could be, which could be two ninths or two, I mean, it could be two months or three months of your salary, right? And, and, and they were like, oh sure. <laughs> but she like, she never knew, she never knew that was an option. If the, if the information hadn't arrived in a flyer, she would never have asked for it, right? So what we found in archival studies looking at like the outcomes of MBA compensation negotiations and then also in experiments, particularly in masculine stereotypic domains, like which salary is one, is that when it's not clear what the standards are, men come, up with, come out with higher outcomes than women. But when you give men and women the same standards, you, the gender effects kind of go away. And it's not because everybody gets the same bar, it's just that people aren't using, they don't need to use gender as, for, as a source of information when they've got all these other clear standards, right? So, so we want to reduce ambiguity around these two things, yeah. Is that across different fields? Um, like, so, we, you talk more about your... Just, is it, um, is the importance of ambiguity, the significance of ambiguity holds across even more feminine fields, like, you know, fields that are thought of you know, there, I, there, I, haven't, I don't know of any studies looking at, um, like, whether this happens more with nurses or, or engineers or something like that. But there's a lot of data to suggest that, well, um, there's a, so it's not the ambiguity itself. This is, let me, let, me pick, let me answer this question. I don't know specifically cross-occupational um, studies necessarily of this. There's a lot of data showing this ambiguity kind of effect. But it's not the ambiguity itself that causes it, right? It's just that in ambiguity, we're not sure how to enact the situation, right? And so we draw on our mental schema, we draw on our past experiences, and we draw on cues from the environment to fill in the blank. And so if our past experience, it's not polite for women to ask for a lot for themselves, or you know, like things like this, these beliefs that we might have, or, um, or an environment in which men tend to get paid more than women. So like if we go, if, if, if there's ambiguity and the environment is gendered or our own past experience is gendered, we're just more, gender has more potential to influence the negotiation. So it's not the ambiguity itself. So if you had an environment in which there was very equitable pay, 
you know what I mean, where, where there was little, and a lot of androgeneity, like a lot of, maybe a lot of diversity, I mean, then I wouldn't worry as much maybe about that. But in an environment that is highly gendered, and then it's ambiguous what you do, I think that there's, that then you're more likely to see the result. So I don't know specific occupationally, but I think in general that principle is what, what it would be. So it's really the intersection of, this, the, it's, it's when there's high ambiguity and gender is like very salient and relevant in the context. So this is just an example of a study of MBA job market outcomes where um, we had upwards of 30 controls for things that might explain why men and women would get different outcomes. So um, previous work experience, pre-MBA salary, how many job offers they had, whether they wanted to live in a city, whether they had work family concerns, whether they wanted to own part of the company, whole variety of things. Controlling for those factors, we found an overall gender gap of about $5,000 on a base of just under 100000 on average. But then we separated the, the sample into um, industries in which career services professionals said that MBAs had a good sense of what they should be asking for in terms of compensation, and industries in which it was less clear. So consulting, investment banking, right? So they kind of knew what a lot of people go into this, they know what it is. Manufacturing, technology, a variety of things where it's less in, more ambiguous. And what they found, can you see when I stand oh, yeah. there? Okay. Um, what they found was that in the low ambiguity industries, which was 70% of the sample, most people were going into those, um, there was no gender difference, right? But in the 30% of the sample um, where there was ambiguity, there's a more than a $10,000 and more than you know 10% you know 10% difference, you know, in terms of what they were accepting, which is big, you know. Um, similarly, studies of executive compensation indicate that it's like in spaces like bonuses and equity, you know, that are very they're a little bit more amorphous. They're, they're not ambiguous because there's no information, but they're ambiguous because it's very complex. You know, it's not exactly sure how these things are discerned. But bonuses can be like very ambiguous. But um, but some, some places they're not. But that that you're more likely to see gender differences in these spaces than in re relatively standardized forms of pay. So how do you think about? Um, reducing ambiguity at the individual level. You need to think about, you know, what information do I need and where can I find it? And what's very important is that, so this is where my mind was kind of racing earlier, so that you get in this sort of ambiguous situation, right? And what you have to be careful of is that your information search itself is not gendered, right? So we all have this propensity to compare ourselves to similar others. Um, so if you ask, if you, like in psych studies, if somebody asks you to compare yourself to somebody else, write down their initials, you're likely to write down someone like your sister or your best friend. Um, it's just sort of a propensity that we have. So like there are these studies that were done in what's called the entitlement effects. Like why do women expect to be paid less than men, you know? And so they did these studies where they started out doing these studies saying either one of two things, either here's $5 and work until you think you've earned it on some gender neutral task like counting the dots on the page or something. Or they said, you know, here, now that you've been counting dots for uh, 20 minutes or something, um, here's some dollar bills, pay yourself what you think you've earned, right? And when it wasn't clear what you should be paying them, what they should be paying themselves, women paid themselves less than men, you know? But then when they gave them information about what other people had paid themselves and you had some sort of benchmark, they both men and women went for the average, more or less. You know, that, that sort of took away the gender effect. But then they did a study, let me just finish this part, then I'll answer. Then they did a study where they said, okay, well, you can look at what other people paid themselves. And so what they found was that the, the women were looking at what, like, Julia, Ellen, and Jimena had paid themselves, you know, and the guys were looking at what, like, Jason, Joe, and Jorge had paid themselves, right? So 
So even if there's no discrimination, we're just if men on average are paid more than women and you're sampling on distributions, right, you're going to come up with different numbers. It's not about discrimination, but it's just biased information search, right? So I have a question because I'm thinking of ambiguity and trying to wrap my head around it. Yeah. And what would apply to us and the questions you ask, what do I need, where can I find it? Sometimes, say for a job, you can get a salary range. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Like, say you get range between 80 and 90,000 how do you and that's what you can research and that's maybe what they're yeah. willing to tell you up front yeah then how if, if say they came in at 90,000 um, where do you negotiate with that I mean do you then ask for time off or like an office yeah. or you know sure something like you can you can go from there too right right so absolutely yeah 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 so no so so I definitely keep having you know this Roger Fisher the famous guy wrote getting to yes yeah. he passed away but, he used to tell the story of the opt optometrist, the most wealthy optometrist or something, and, and he would say, well, the glasses will be, or this will be $200, and then if nobody blinked, he'd say, for the lenses, you know? <laughs> and then the frame, you know? Um, but the, you know, you definitely want this, or you definitely want to be, if you, particularly if you, if, 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 um, if you don't think they're going to negotiate a compensation, right, which is, yeah. which is a lot of places, then maybe what you want to be negotiating for is a professional opportunity. You know, you want to make sure that you learn and grow and that you get the types of leadership experiences or professional experiences, overseas experiences that you want to have. I mean, going back to this career versus compensation, you know, I think you're going to, your lifetime earnings and your, your earning potential is going to be influenced much more by the career trajectory that you follow than a few thousand dollars at organizational entry. I mean, those few thousand dollars, I don't want to diminish them. They're non, the, the, you know, the, the, that's important too. But more important is that, you know, you are, you're negotiating a path, you know, a sustainable path in your career, and you're getting to, you know, levels of, levels of authority and opportunity, you know, that you want to get to. So I, I think it's very important to really think hard and ask people, a lot of informational interviews, ask people who are, who are 10 years out places you want to be. What did you do? What were important experiences you had? What advice would you give people in terms of the types of experiences that you should be looking for? And are you going to address it later, but the, the cost of negotiating, how it could yeah. affect personal relationships? I'm like heading there, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm <laughs> heading exactly there, yeah. Yeah, I'm heading there. Um, so, as I said, you know, if you want to be aware of biases in your major, you want, you want to reach out uh, outside of convenience networks and make sure you're getting data, you know, from, you know, your, 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 your standards, your information is broad and the sort of, you're, you're, you're anchoring on the most advantageous information that you can. Um, yeah, don't just consult and compare yourself to similar others. Okay, it, also at the ambiguity, uh, this is a sort of organizational level comment, but it was very interesting. Victoria Budson is, you know, she takes WAP research to the White House, and, um, and I've also talked to people at the Labor, Department of Labor and other folks, but, you know, I think that this, this, this um, uh, last year, uh, Obama had this executive order on pay transparency, and this is this idea that, you know, if you're a federal contractor, you have to make more transparent what people are making. You know, people need to have this information, so you don't, that just, see, the wonderful thing about reducing the ambiguity is that you don't need to, like, eliminate all of the stereotypes or bias. You know what I mean? Like, if you can just get better, if they get better information, um, the effects go away, right? And what's going to eliminate, eliminate the stereotypes is getting more women into higher paid positions and a higher position of authority. I mean, that, that's probably the most, the, the stereotypes are a reflection of the structure of society. That, that's, that's from whence they come, right? So I'm singing to the choir on that one, I know, here. Um, 
So going to your individual challenge workbook, if you're going to work on this, I, I would, sh I'd, I'd, I'd say, okay, where's the ambiguity, like, in how I'm perceived, um, and how I'm perceiving others, you know, where, where am I, where might I be re relying on biases or other people, you know, to kind of fill in the blanks, you know, um, uh, you know, certain things like they may not know I'm the primary breadwinner in my family, you know, or something like that, or they may think, you know, I mean, whatever it is, you know, what are, what are the things, um, uh, uh, Patty Bellinger talks about the, the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg. You know, there are those things that immediately self-present for people, and then there's all that stuff below the waterline. And she asks, you know, what do you want? What's below the waterline that you want people to see? You know, um, how do I? How do you reduce ambiguity? But you know, get some advice on how one negotiates. What are the norms? Um, and what to negotiate for? <laughs> there was this great study that was done where they looked at what is the advantage of knowing somebody in an organization before you got the job. And like the financial benefits were like greater than something like 10 years of edu education or something, it was absurd, you know. That just, you know, they just knowing some really, you know, if there's any chance that you have to sort of under get, figure out how the organization works, is it normative to negotiate? You know, do people negotiate? Or if they don't negotiate on pay, what do they negotiate on, you know? Yes. I have a question, and maybe something you're going to get to, but especially, and I'm thinking particularly when you're inter interviewing for a new position at a lot of, like, small nonprofits and things yeah. like this, there's, like, no way to get this information. And even if you look at sort of general norms, it's, sort of like, some have much bigger budgets than others. Right. And, like, it's, yeah. like, I don't really know how to reduce the ambiguity in that context. Yeah, I mean, I think you can, but I think if you went in and you had had a lot of conversations with people who know that space, and you said, I don't really know how it works in your organization. You know, this is what I'm hearing from other organizations, or this is what the market looks like to me as I talk to prospective employers, or this is, these are the offers that I have, or something like that. I mean, that's a way of just, um, there's what uh, Jim Sedanius calls the non-offer offer, you know, where instead of asking for something in particular, you throw out a bunch of numbers or criteria that you've accumulated, you know, so that you're not saying this is what you should pay me, but just say this is what my research indicates, and then give them a chance to respond to that. Um, and you ideally want information that anchors you well, you know what I mean? Um, the, um, so again, as you're thinking about the ambiguity, you might also want to go back to your steps one and two. Like, so what, you know, you, a lot of people will have ambiguity, I don't really even know what I want, you know, I mean, that, and that gives us a little bit of a, Feeling, you know, I mean, it, it takes some time to really think about what do you want, what would you want out of a particular job, what would you want to ask for, what could you, and then also who you should be negotiating with and how. Okay, so creating opportunities and barriers. This is where I'm going to get to this. So sometimes women have less opportunity. There's this ambiguity issue, but then sometimes women also have less opportunity than men to negotiate um, for career advancement. And there's two main reasons. One is social networks, and the other one is gender stereotypes. And I'm going to talk briefly about negotiate social networks and then get to the gender stereotypes point. The social networks issue um, is that, um, particularly in a male-dominated, not everybody's going to be entering this, but particularly in a male-dominated organization, and this could break down a, a, along other identity lines, right? Um, but in a male, what studies of um, social networks within male-dominated organizations indicate is that men, we all, we all have a propensity, it's easier for us to make friends with people who are like ourselves, right? And so when you ask men what their professional networks look like within the organization, they're largely connected with men in the male-dominated organization, and then they report both professional connections and friendship connections with a lot of these people, right? So they're really, they're bonding with these people that they're working with. 
For the women, they'll tend to report more gender diverse networks, right? They've got, they've got a lot of women in their network, they've got a lot of men in their network. They're, they may be well, then sometimes they may be well connected professionally to the men in the workplace, but then they ask you, who are your, who are your friends? Where's your social network? Sometimes it's outside of the organization, right? It's, it's it, and, um, not with the people who are the power, right? So, so how could that influence your negotiation opportunities? You know, and then also the information that you get. You know, it's, it's easier to ask somebody coming off the basketball court or at the barbecue or whatever, you know, uh, how did so-and-so get that raise? Or how did so-and-so get that opportunity? You know, or how do I, you know, to just to get, get some of that information, um, I think they call it in the Navy getting the gouge, is that right? Yeah, so like what's the inside scoop on how you pass this test, you know? What's the, and so social networks to the extent to which they're gendered can influence um, uh, access to information, but it can also influence that sort of, that, that those, those relationship connections that might make it easier to negotiate or might it easier to get the advice that you need to negotiate. Um, gender stereotypes, um, oh, so I just said this. You want to, so you want to enhance your negotiations through relationships, right? You want to think about building and leveraging your network to enhance your negotiations. Um, and so on, in the workbook, I have this sort of question about how do you enhance your negotiations through relationships? Think about who are people from whom who can help give you information, and and, and and I know that for some people this sounds very instrumental. I don't I don't think you you can I, I I'm not um, encouraging you to be instrumental in this. You just think about making friends and you know learning things and getting to know folks. You know I mean you want to work with these people. Go get to know them. You know um, who can give you information? Who can give you advice? Who can give you social support? So who can be kind of a confidant? You know, can I ask for that? Am I ready to ask for that? Is it okay if I ask for this? You know, what should what should what do I deserve? Am I, am I underestimating myself? Am I overestimating myself? And then also, what's really important, and I'll get into this more in a little while, but role playing. I mean, just having someone you could say like go through your arguments for what you want. And I'm going to get more detail about the types of arguments you might want to craft. But this is not easy to do. You know. So who might these people be? And then advocacy, you know, who, in some instances, you want to, Debbie Kolb, who's um, emeritus, Professor Emeritus at Simmons, a lot of career negotiations, and she talks about, like, laying the seeds, you know, like, who are some folks who could start kind of talking you up for a particular position, or make a referral, or you could say, I talked to them, and they advised me to do, you know, who are people who could be your advocates in the negotiation? So going to gender stereotypes, there's, I'm going to blow through this because I think you guys know this so well, there's, there's a couple different categories of stereotypes. There are explicit stereotypes and implicit stereotypes, right? So explicit, are, explicit stereotypes are overt, they're easier to resist, right? Um, at least in our culture, in some cultures, they're um, where it's just socially acceptable to be very explicitly discriminatory, that's a different thing, but at least in our culture, it's easier to, and in a lot of Western cultures, and I think a lot, and a lot, growingly in a lot of places, um, um, uh, certainly outside, in a lot of places, it's easier to resist over stereotypes. Um, implicit stereotypes, though, are these this sort of like threat in the air. This sort of this what they are. This sort of taken for granted beliefs about what men and women are like. You know, um, men are better negotiators, stuff like that. People may not say these things explicitly, but they believe it. Or men are more competitive, men are more ambitious, whatever these things are, these sort of these taken for granted things that we may not make explicit, but we kind of believe that's the way the world is. And those things can be more insidious, influencing our behavior. 
and our expectations because we, we're not resisting them. We're kind of taking them for granted. Then there are descriptive and prescriptive stereotypes. Descriptive stereotypes are about how we, we think men and women kind of will behave. What, what are they like? What are they good at? And then prescriptive stereotypes, though, are these shoulds. You know, what is kind of appropriate and attractive behavior for men and women, okay? And I'm going to emphasize right now the shoulds. And the problem that we run into in negotiation is that this self-advocating, this asking for a lot of stuff for yourself, violates our shoulds in relation to the feminine stereotype, right? We want women to be, you know, more concerned about others than themselves, you know? Um, uh, and so when they're asking for something for themselves, particularly making claim to something like money, which is a, you know, that's, it's sort of associated with the male breadwinner, it's very high status, that violates our expectations of, of um, polite, attractive feminine behavior, right? So I'm going to show you, this is one study in, a, in one, in a ver something that's been replicated like a lot of times. Um, uh, this has been replicated a lot of times. I'm going to show you the gender effects. Frankly, in the, in the, during the Great Recession, there were a lot of people going back to the salary negotiation things where they didn't like men or women negotiating. Um, but this is, this is one of the first studies that we ran. Um, in, a, in a whole variety of studies, we, you evaluate a candidate um, who doesn't negotiate. You just get their basic background information. We always make them look good. Um, in this case, it's just paper, pen and paper evaluation, of a CV with a gender neutral name, and then interview notes that indicate whether the person is male or female. Right? And again, the person's setup is very promising. And then a condition where you get all the same information as this, but then this person does it, it indicates that the person negotiated. Now, in this first study that we ran, it was a pretty aggressive negotiation by a junior person asking for a whole bunch of stuff just for a summer internship. And what we look at, <laughs> what we look at is the difference between um, your willingness, I'm not sure where to situate myself. <laughs> The difference between your willingness to work with this person, here we did higher, in other studies we do, how much would you benefit, enjoy work, or working with this person more broadly, the same pattern. You know, we look at the, what's, what's your inclination to work with this person when they don't negotiate as opposed to when they do, right? And in this first study, there was a decline in the willingness to work with the guy for having negotiated. And he didn't even, he didn't even have the offer. Um, and so, I, but I, I like this because men can overdo it too. I don't want to pretend men can just walk in and demand anything they want and they get it. It's not the case. Um, but the effect for women was two and a half times greater. And in a lot of studies that we ran when we toned it down and it was an internal uh, promotion and, or, you know, that type of thing, what we found was no effect for the men and a significant negative effect for the women. That people were saying, you know, I... I I don't really want to work with her. You know, she seems too demanding. She's not very nice. You know, I don't think she cares about organizational relationships was another measure that indicated why, you know, indicated why there was this decline in the willingness to work for the women. Um, now, I'm going to get to good news in a moment. Um, but this was this thing. So this is, so why are, why are women, why in ambiguity? Are women more reticent to negotiate than men? Well, you know, I mean, they're reading the social situation. They've kind of learned, you know? And by the way, these evaluations don't vary by gender. I mean, there's not, you know, like both men and women are finding it a little bit, you know, not so attractive, you know? So we learn these things and we carry them around with us. Um, now on the good news side, where the pinch is, is really around advocating for yourself. 
so this is data from one study we ran, and we, we ran other studies, and then other people have run studies looking for, well, what difference does it make if a woman's negotiating for herself or for somebody else, right? We love it when women are fierce advocates for others, right? Um, and so uh, we did this study where you're either negotiating compensation for yourself or for somebody else in the organization. So you're this person's kind of sponsor or mentor, or you are that person. We, we made this very clear, but it made no difference for men, right? Made a huge difference for women. Now, I love showing this slide because the women do better than anybody. And women negotiating for others do better than anybody else. It's <laughs> not always the case, I have to admit. Um, this effect that women do better negotiating for others than themselves is replicated numerous times. The relative height of the men's bars to these kind of shifts. But the point is that, right, we, we feel we're, we're less inhibited. We've got very nice research showing that. You know, it is this it is this inhibition in the advocating for the self, this sort of fear of being perceived as um, a witch, you know, that, uh, that 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 inhibits women from advocating for themselves. Now, this is really important. I love showing, this is like the slide that I show um, in response to my least favorite question that I love to answer, which is, does this mean you should hire a man to negotiate for you, right? <laughs> No, right? <laughs> so this is not that women are not great negotiators. Women are great negotiators. There is this pinch that they experience around advocating for themselves and then particularly around money. I mean, money is just very masculine stereotype domain. It is not clear to me that all forms of career-related negotiation are gonna, you're gonna run into this. But this is, this is, so this is something to kind of keep in mind. But also when you're having that yucky feeling, anticipating negotiating, maybe a job negotiation, realize that it's not because of your lack of competence or something like that, or that you're just a bad negotiator, or you're one of those women who don't ask. It's that you're reading the social situation, you're accurate, it's correct that this is tricky, um, and now we gotta strategize what to do about that. Okay, so that's where I'm gonna go from here. Yes? So I'm curious about the interaction between the social network and the stereotypes, because yeah. I, can, I can imagine a situation where in order to be able to negotiate for myself in a company, I have to counter stereotypes or present a certain persona that prevents me from having a social network at my job place yeah. in a way that men don't. Right. So, right. So men may not only right. They may. They may right. So right. So so if you're in a situation where, right, you're at a deficit in terms of your ability even to build those, you're not as close to the people you're working with, so they may be more likely to stereotype you. You know, and because they don't know you that well, you're, it's maybe that much more socially risky when you ask for something. Or you might not want them to know you very well because then that maybe you're a very warm and kind person, but in order to perform at the company, you have to present. Otherwise. As tough, yeah. yeah. All right, well, I've got one answer to that one. Do you want to just, so, so, um, okay, yeah. So what I argue here, so you want to think about enhancing your negotiations through relationships. You want to build and leverage your network. But where I'm headed now is you also want to think about enhancing your relationships through your negotiations. Okay, so this is a strategy that we've called in research or relational accounts or what I've kind of learned from conversations with Cheryl Sandberg to call an I-we strategy. It's much better. She's got much better marketing than the academics do. Um, so, um, and what it involves is basically explaining why what you're asking for is legitimate in terms that make sense to the person with whom you're, not, not why it's legitimate in your eyes, right? Why it's legitimate in their eyes what you're asking for. And then, um, and then do signal your concern for organizational relationships. Now, if you genuinely don't care about organizational relationships, I wouldn't suggest that you be um, disingenuous. You know, I mean, I think 
some people feel like this is like makes them want to scream that women would have to strategize in this way to self-present this way and I'm actually quite sympathetic to that point of view I think if somebody really felt inauthentic doing this and then that cost outweighs the benefit and you shouldn't do it but um, I'm being kind of our, every social movement needs its idealist and its pragmatist and I'm being the pragmatist with this but what we've shown in research is that um, I'll get to Sharon what we've shown in research is that when women can do both of these things and I'm going to give you a couple of examples of explaining why what they want is should be viewed as legitimate in the other person's eyes and they signal and just in subtle ways just like I'm taking your perspective that what we get is a that, that it's the perception of legitimacy enhances the willingness to give the request to grant the request and the um, perception that you've taken their perspective uh, uh, mitigates the social cost so so it's a way of kind of getting what you want and making the impression that you want to make at the same time Frankly, I think this is just good negotiating strategy. I mean, this is, this, is, this is in getting to yes, right? You want to come up with legitimate explanations and you want to think about the relationships and care for the relationship. Go hard on the issues, not on the people, you know? Um, but it just may be even more beneficial for women than for men because women have this potential minefield to navigate. So um, Cheryl, in her, in her Lean In book, talks about this and, and she has this great example from her, from her um, negotiations with Facebook so she says, of course, you realize that you're hiring me to run your deal team. So you want me to be a good negotiator, right? Which is the legitimacy point. You know, basically, like, if I don't negotiate now, you should be worried that you've hired the wrong person. Um, but then she says, but this is the only time you and I will ever be on opposite sides of the table. You know, I am thinking team. I am thinking we. Um, but you should, you know, you should, you should understand this is why I'm asking for this. This is very similar to, I'm not going to, I'm actually in the interest of time, I'm not going to go, this is very similar to, um, examples that we've used in our experiments where we have like videotapes of, of a candidate for promotion and they, they negotiate multiple female uh, actors and multiple male actors and we have them acting out scripts. The scripts made actually no difference, very little difference for the men, um, but it did make a significant difference for the women. We were crafting scripts and we were hoping it would work for women. But here are some other examples that are outside the domain of compensation. So, oh no, this, is, this top one is compensation, the other one's more broad. But the senior executive finds out for the second time that a male subordinate is paid more than she is, right? This is, executive told me this story. Like that would, you can have, you have a lot of thoughts at this moment, right? <laughs> uh, that you might like to tell people what a jerks they are and don't you appreciate me and look at all I've given, right? But what she said she did, and not, not a threatening, but in a very kind of team way, is she went in and said, you know, I'm confident this is a mistake because it's inconsistent with company values to pay subordinates more than any. So I'm going to leave this to you guys to figure this out. <laughs> and I think it's actually a great move. You know, it's basically like, you know, it was very, and, and her, she argues they did. She, she made it very senior within the company. She hadn't done anything after the first incident. I don't know that. I know she might have. I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. That could, that could make a difference. Um, these are just the anecdotes. These are illustrating the, 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 these are illustrations of what we find in the research. Um, the, another woman is asked to lead a diversity initiative, and this is, this is some time back in particular. Diversity initiatives are still today not always that highly valued, um, but she really felt like this is a new thing for the company. She was worried what it would do for her career. She felt like she was being pulled off, you know, like a, a, they wanted her because she was a super talent, you know, to run this, to give it legitimacy, but she like wants to, she wanted to stay on, on track. So one of the things that she did, she said, well, how will we measure this initiative's contribution to the bottom line, right? So if you're pulling me off of a line position and I think all you care about is contribution to the bottom line, 
how do we craft this job? So, but she doesn't say I'm worried about my career. She negotiates in terms of how do we, how is this job going to add value? And this is the win-win for her is that she'll be able to show if she makes a difference that she's contributing. A lot of the executives that I interview do this, that they, the one way of getting out of the I mode and into the we mode is that when they're negotiating a job offer, they talk about what would make the, a person in this role successful. So I, you know, if I'm hearing you right and you want to achieve this, I think this person needs to report directly to the CFO. Or if you really wanted to do this, I think there needs to be, you know, an office in Asia or whatever it is. So like really talking very seriously with the company about what they, how, what they want for this role and how you would succeed in it. Taking your own, taking yourself kind of out of it, but but you're but you're effectively in it. If you were going to take it, this is what you would want to see. Um, no, I'm just gonna skip past that. So this is this video that, it's very short, but it's this video that Katie Couric's outfit created where we had some Kennedy School students acting out um, different versions of her practicing how you'd ask for something. And let me just, this is a nice one related to staff. Um, just click through. I can just click through. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so you'll see, I'll just let you watch it. There's two versions of this negotiation for this campaign um, that I'm working on to go forward is another full-time employee because you have been giving me more projects and more clients, which I appreciate. That said, I really, really need another person. What I'm going to ask for is another full-time employee for the campaign. This is a real strategic opportunity for us. If we get into this market right now, we can make a huge difference and down the line, I'm looking long-term for the company here, we will have um, better outcomes. Okay, so what's fun about that, right, is, is, is all true, right? You are giving me too much work. I need another employee. <laughs> um, but also, if you would just give me this employee, I can make, we can make a much bigger difference here, right? And so the idea is you're going to have all of your arguments, which you write down in your workbook, right? you have all of your arguments for why, what it is that you want, and then the, the, argue, the question is when you go in, what's going to be most persuasive, right? And, and among all the arguments that you can come up with, you might edit out some of those that are about like why you overwork me and I don't and I resent it, and leave in the things that why is it why is it in their interest what you're asking for? You know, this is where the role play comes in. This is not easy to do. This is not easy to do, particularly when you have some fire in the belly about what you're asking for. It is very hard in general to ask to take on other people's perspectives. It's very well documented. We're not good at that as human beings, and. Um, and particularly when we're, when we're kind of very caring about something for ourselves, I think it's even harder. So this is, yeah. Did you say men could use either script and get similar results? Was, that, was this what you were referring to? Um, when we did those other scripts, we, we had scripts similar. We had another one where like my, my boss, like a mentor, an advisor told me to negotiate, you know. Um, and we had one that was very similar to Cheryl. I don't know how you'll view people when negotiating. I hope you see it as something I bring to the job, those types of scripts. It just didn't make any difference on, on the evaluations of men, either in terms of what they were going to be given or how they were perceived socially. But it, for women, it improved both the willingness to give them what they were asking for and their perceptions of their willingness to work with that person after the negotiation. So, I don't, so it's not a deficit to men. And I think, frankly, this strategy in general, as I said, is really, is really best practice. I've got a colleague at HBS, Deepak Malhotra, who wrote this book called Negotiating Genius. You know. And his advice is like list of ten things you want to do in job negotiation. Like 
write on like the same things more or less that I would say for advice for women. This is generally good negotiating advice. It's just maybe all that more important for women that you do do the homework, that you really think about, you know, and 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 that you think about the best argument. Yeah, I kind of related to that point. I think it's kind of addressing the end of what he said there, but I thought a lot in reading the book and this as well that like kind of emphasizing these individual survival strategies for women, yeah. like kind of take away from the, you know, if you're encouraging women to take on these kind of non-offensive traits, like does that really help us down the line? This is the best, this is I think the best argument against that, 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 that you could create a situation where organizations reward um, women behaving in relational ways and then don't reward the women who don't. Um, uh, I think that's legitimate argument. I think it's a legitimate concern to have. I don't think in those two versions that she was acting necessarily particularly sappily feminine. And I think what she was doing was basically trying to explain to them, I'm taking your perspective and this is why you should want what I want, which is the essence of sales, right? I mean, why you want what I'm trying to sell you, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that I, I, I think that's something very good to keep in mind. Um, and it's a good principle to live by, I don't think it's incompatible with using this type of strategy. Like I, 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 oh, in fact, we have data, we did this. We have versions of, we did this experimentally. We had women negotiate where they're like, you know, I'm sorry, I don't want to offend anybody. That would be the last thing I want to do. I just thought maybe, you know. <laughs> and um, what they find is that yes, they like them. They like the woman who does this, but they don't see any reason they have to give her anything. So, so, th so this is very important. It's, it, in order to get both, and then we had other things like, oh, I have an outside offer, um, where they thought, oh, that's legitimate, I'll give it to you, but, you know, that's a little harsh. So, um, so that, no, you can't, it's not just about being nice. This is very important. It's not just about being nice. It's about coming up with a legitimate explanation and showing that you're taking your perspective. It's, it's, it's really about doing, the, doing an effective sell, not just about acting nice. Thank you for asking that, actually, because I, I should have, to tell that. Yes. So I had two comments. One, to your point about asking about nonprofit um, and getting the, um, the resources there. There is a website called GuideStar where you can find oh, yeah. nonprofit information um, and salary information included on there, just for you to know it's a resource. Um, and then I wondered with. Well, if, um, I, if I throw in sure. one thing, will you lose your train of thought? No, you, no. Okay. Because some of those, that's right, there are a lot of sources out there where you can get those bars. One thing that I hear from like, coaches and HR professionals is watch out because it averages information across types of size yeah. of organization yeah, and geographic area and stuff like that. So you have to be, don't be too, don't be too confident that these things that you get from these big databases are exactly the yeah. right thing. Some organizations are listed and you can find from there as yeah. some. But this, right. but it is a band. No, it's a good, it's, you should definitely yeah. do it, but then you just have to keep you a critical eye. Yeah. Yep. So if there's uh, specific yep. organizations, you can search for it. Now, where it gets tricky is if you are coming in as a lower middle management person yeah. and you don't know what the gap is in the right, system, right. that's where you probably have to you know, get some yeah. coaching get some or some comparative information. Yeah. But if you have specific organizations or in a, you know, you don't have to rely just yeah. on the database for, to do it for you, pick three organizations, one of the ones that you're applying to, and do compare it in D.C. or in New York or yeah. whatever you get. You'll get close, as close to the yeah. as, as close you to your yeah. number as you 
right. That's like such this. a smart idea. I mean, you can also see too if it, this organization is up here and this organization is down here. Even if it's not quite your level, you can see sort of where does comp stand? Yeah, range. relative comp. Yeah. I've never heard that. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Um, but I was going to ask. I wonder if. Um, the job matters in this. Mm -hmm. So if they're looking for a job for like, you know, a diversity professional or something, um, and they're looking specifically for a woman or they're looking for some, you know, and a part of the job is to have strong leadership skills and to be able to be demanding and authoritative in those things. I wonder if showing that in an interview process um, or when it comes time for the end of negotiating with that is going to yield the same result. Um, yeah, there might not be backlash in some situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I think so that's so, right. Yeah. And that goes back to the reducing the ambiguity, right? So you're not going to worry so much. If you, if you get the message that they they want to see you full force, <laughs> you know. Well, what if you don't get the message, though? I well, mean, then, well then I think what well, the problem, exactly. Sometimes women don't get the message, and then they, they, we've had this sort of message that we've heard um, don't act like that. You know, yeah. there, there's a hesitation to show your full self, to be your authentic self. You know, I think I think the better information that you have, you know, the more, the better information that you have going in, and you know, kind of what the norms are, and you're walking in, and you know what you want. I just think, um, this I haven't demonstrated empirically, but but my instinct and my and my experience talking to people is that when you have that clarity, it's just it's a much easier negotiation, right? I mean, you're not as nervous. You know, you know what you want. You you can be real, you be yourself. If you think you've got good arguments for why they would go for what you're asking for, that's not that nerve wracking. You know what I mean? Like, let me, let's try it out. Let me see, see what you think. I think, what I think you guys care about is X, you know? And this is what I'm asking, you know? So I think, um, but this is, I think is a great example. You, it is really helpful to get some beat on the organization. And the career services folks here can be very helpful in that. Alumni and knowing organizations and Doing that work is very helpful. Um, so, uh, so again, think about your strategy. Um, I'm going to just kind of blow through this, but the role play. I really like to emphasize in the role play. I ask in the workbook, come up with a bunch of reasons they would say yes. Come up with a bunch of reasons they would say no, and think about how you would respond. So it's it's like with the, you know. Um, it's the opposite of the eyeglasses, you know, example. But if they say no to this, then what's my counter, you know? Yeah, so. the, and we went through the examples very quickly, so I'll look at the book later. But my, my cost or the opportunity, not the opportunity cost, the cost of negotiating, I've been a consultant where you negotiate, 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 yeah. and then they perceive me as a hired gun. Yeah. And this organization as a nonprofit is like, oh, you know, I want to be here now for five years, be an employee. Um, it's not the same sort of yeah. structure now. Am I using emotional intelligence, trying to guide and, and look at the organization and want to be part of that team? Or am I being very feminine and saying, oh, I shouldn't negotiate. I was at the top of the offer in terms of the range. It's what I agreed to, you know, going in. So so there's this thing. There's that, this, um, this thing called self-monitoring. It's this personality thing I do with some of the students in my class. I'm, not that many, but we do this thing where you can do, it's the degree to which you adapt your personality to particular situations. And it, and it is very useful for career advancement, but your, your, your propensity to sort of tune in and adapt. What's really interesting is what they find is that for women, even more than men, it enhances their negotiation performance and their persuasiveness. 
and I think it's this, it's this, you know, it's this. I'm reading, I'm, you know, I'm reading the social, I'm reading the cues of the social situation, and I'm adapting to it. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Uh, I mean. I don't know. I wouldn't. I think it's good to sort of question your gut and make sure that you're not biased. But I think if you're if you're finding yourself adapting yourself to the context and you feel like you know I think this is what works in this space, I, I don't. You know, at face value, that sounds smart to me. Yeah. So I wouldn't. You know, that does sound smart. Yeah. Um, do you want to go in quickly? I've only got five minutes, and I've still got a few. Is that all right? All right. Thank you. Um, so just quickly, um, we've been talking about this already. Um, I'm going to skip through this. At the end, I sort of have this thing about where I ask people to do like an action and accountability plan. I think this is important if you can just break down whatever you, uh, your preparations is in terms of a couple things at a time. If it's, if it's about preparing for the whole thing, you'll get overwhelmed. But if you even just say, I'm going to call this person and ask them about this in the next three weeks, you know, and there's a couple of these things, and, and help a friend keep you accountable about that. I'm going to go to career services. I'm going to whatever it is. You know, I'm going to figure out a database. I'm going to figure out what alumni have worked in this or whatever it is. Um, so career, quick, quick takeaways, career negotiations, um, they're about overcoming barriers as well as seizing opportunities, don't overfocus on compensation. Negotiate to bend norms and shape roles as well as take stuff that's sort of standard. Um, and look for win-wins to create value across realms, across work and family, you know. Um, so ambiguity um, enhances the potential for gender stereotypic attributions and outcomes, gender differences and outcomes in negotiation. You want to reduce the ambiguity, but you want to make sure that your information starts to reduce the ambiguity itself is not gendered, right? Um, and then creating opportunity, uh, what we want to do is like this just goes enhance your enhance your negotiations through relationships, right? And your relationships through your negotiations. I mean, think about. You know, you want to build you want to build relationships in order to get that information and the support and the advice and the access that you want. But you also want to think about using your negotiations as opportunities to create win-win relationships with folks. So I'll leave it there. And we're only, we've just got a couple minutes. But any other questions? Or I'm gonna get just yes. So I had a question about I guess the compounding variable of age, specifically when you mentioned negotiating like your long-term career because a lot of yeah. younger people these days are there for a year or two yeah. and move on. So. How, like, what can you comment on that? I think that's all the more important. I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of stuff written about how, yes, younger people, well, a lot of people these days have what they call boundaryless careers, that it's sort of the day of you join the company and you're the company man and then you, you join and you go up the ranks and then you retire within the same organization. It's just very unusual or more exceptional these days um, than the norm. And so I think all the more is if, if you're in a job for experience, Negotiate to get the experiences that you want. I mean, negotiate around. You know, I would say give. I would give. Figure out. We, we all have constraints, and we've got financial constraints. You get things you have to do, but I wouldn't get too hung up on. I think particularly early in your career, I think I wouldn't get too hung up on the compensation thing. I would be looking for what are those experiences that I want to get to set me up for the jobs that I really want to have. You know, um, I think that's very important. And in a lot of careers, particularly like Kennedy School careers, those types of experiences, like. If you talk to people 10 years out, they'll say, you know, X number of years in the field or, um, you, know, you know, having particular types of experience prepare one well for, you know, entering certain levels of job. And so I think what you want to be negotiating for is that path, you know, not just particular bells and whistles around the job. You, you want to be, you want to be, th even if you can't see the whole path, you, you probably have a gut instinct about, I, I want to figure out if I like this. I want to figure out if I like to 
manage projects, you know, or um, or if I like to be doing the direct client-facing work, you know, stuff like that. Does that make sense? I think we might have to wrap okay, up great. at this moment. Hannah, is there anything you want us to know about the workbook that we should? Oh yeah, it's a draft, as I said, and um, so uh, it's not for general distribution, but I'd love any feedback you have on it. And, uh, and, um, and if it's useful, or even if at any point later down the line it's useful. <laughs> well, thank you so much for thank sharing you. I've been, I've been fortunate to hear Hannah present this work a couple times. Every single time I take more away, so thank you. Uh, we don't have a seminar next week, spring break. Congratulations, all of you. Um, but we'll return the week after with one of the WAPS fellows, Pinar Fletcher. She's a doctoral candidate at the business school, and we'll hear about her research. Thank you all.